from Deuteronomy 21. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, and if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the firstfruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, he will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of this city, this, is our, son, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, before we consider this passage, would you please join with me in prayer? Lord, once again, we quiet ourselves before you. Um, we know that, that you are wise, that you are good, that we need to hear you speak to us. And so we pray uh, for humble hearts. We pray for the ability to hear Lord, we pray that you would lead us along the pathway you want us to go. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So if you are new uh, with us this morning, we have been uh, traveling through Deuteronomy since September. Um, and, and so I've spent a lot of time, you know, throughout the week studying Deuteronomy. And I'll say that the more that I have been reading it, the more that I've been trying to understand what it means, the more convinced I am that Deuteronomy has the power to change our lives. And I, I don't say that lightly. I mean in a substantial way, there is something here that Deuteronomy offers that can that deeply change who we are. Which I realize, based on the passage that we just read, might seem like an odd thing to say. Uh, because there are moments like this one in Deuteronomy that just seem to be so removed from our reality, so foreign and strange. And I would suggest that part of the reason we have a hard time understanding that about Deuteronomy is that we don't understand, I think, what Deuteronomy fundamentally is. And that is God coming to a very lost people, lost in the, the darkest part of the woods, and giving them directions for how to come home. See, Israel, the people that, of course, that the law of Moses is given to, Israel is a mess. I mean, they've, they've spent 400 years in slavery to a pagan nation, and that is not going to help. And if you know even the stories of Genesis, you realize that even before they were enslaved, there was a whole lot of dysfunction in the way that the people of Abraham's descendants related to each other. There is divorce, there is polygamy, there is idolatry, there are inequities, there's all sorts of issues they are in a mess. They are lost in their sin. It's like they are stuck in the darkest park of the forest and they don't know the right way, the, the way to get to a better way to live, a way of justice and peace and harmony. 
They are so far removed from them that they have no clue how to get there. And, and what God does in the book of Deuteronomy is he comes to them and says, let me tell you where you need to go. De- Deuteronomy is not a book of like eternal principles once and for all. By and large, eternal is, uh, Deuteronomy is a book that says, here's what you need to do next. So, it's, you know, it's as if God is saying, okay, so I, I see that you have polygamy. I see that there's this inequities. We will talk about that, but first, let's figure out what needs to happen to start moving in the right direction. I see that there are inequities. There's problems with poverty where people even sell themselves to slavery, and we're going to have to address that. But first, here's the next step that you need to go. It is a set of directions in the middle of the woods where it's dark. What do you need to do to start moving in the right place and getting to the destination where you can be a righteous and peaceful and joyful community? That's what Deuteronomy is doing. And our problem is if we read Deuteronomy thinking that it's directions for us, it's not going to work. Because, yeah, we're also lost. We also have our own mess and our own confusion, but we're in a different place. And so if we just follow the directions of Israel who are in their own place, we'll just get further lost. That's not how you're supposed to read Deuteronomy. If if we read Deuteronomy rightly, what I think we're supposed to do is kind of try to put ourselves in the location that Israel is. And as God says, here's the way to go, we start looking along that path, and not just at the specific instructions themselves, but we look to where those instructions are headed. What, what we need to do is as we're looking at what God is saying, here's what you need to do next, we kind of have to look through the trees beyond the pathway. Maybe we even have to climb to the top of a tree and to see the destination that God is seeking to bring his people to. What he is telling them, this is the way of righteousness. This is what it will look like to be a peaceful, joyful community. And if we can get that vision, if we can understand where God is seeking to bring his people, then we, in our own place, in our own lostness, can start by the power of the Spirit to chart a direction to that same home. That's, I think, how we're supposed to use the book of Deuteronomy. In the last few weeks, as we've been listening to the instructions in chapters 12 through 16, there are different things about the life of beauty, the life of wholeness, the the destination that God is describing that that we have seen as we've looked along the pathway to its conclusion. That a life that is good and whole and human is a life involving knowing God, worshiping Him, being His children. More than that, secondly, we saw that even though sometimes when we think of worship as us just working and being useful to God, we realize that with Deuteronomy saying, no, that's not the destination. The destination of worship is a destination of delight and rest and Sabbath. That's what you're made for. This morning, we see a third piece to what this intended destination of goodness looks like. And that is that this life of worship, this life of rest, is also a life that involves being a part of a household. Now, to explain what I mean by this, I want to first just spend a little time just kind of like digging into what what the Bible even means by household. I will get to kind of what it means for us, but you'll just have to kind of travel with me for a little while through the Bible itself. So in the Old Testament, in in Israel, the household was the, we can say the, the fundamental, the most basic unit 
of society. It was the foundation of how Israel functioned. And I want to say from the get-go, when you hear household, a lot of times when we think of household, we think nuclear family, right? Father, mother, couple kids, maybe a dog, household. But, but in Israel, household means something bigger than that. And I, I want us, whenever you hear the word household, to recognize that in, in the Old Testament, household was usually at least three generations, like parents, children, grandchildren, sometimes even great-grandchildren if the parents lived long enough. You'd have hired hands, you'd have servants, you might even have some refugees staying. A household would easily be over 30 people oftentimes. Living together, maybe not all under one roof, maybe you have a couple you know, houses side by side with each other, but it was a shared life. The work that they would do as a household would be work done together. They would eat together. They would depend upon each other together. This is what the household was. If you wanted safety and security, you belonged to a household. When you have in Israel, in Old Testament, a description of the, the villages or cities of Israel, those are essentially just clans. They are collections of households where all of these different households will live within certain gates to keep themselves safe before going out to their own farmlands. And whenever a city needed to decide what to do, the elders would meet at the gate, and the elders were simply just the, the heads of each household, the patriarch of each, who would kind of deliberate about what to do. That's, that's the structure that you had in, in ancient Israel. So why am I kind of just taking this walk through ancient Near Eastern background? Because when you see the way that God speaks of the household in his instructions, you see again and again him upholding the integrity of it, saying, this is important. This is something that you need to pursue and preserve. It is significant to what it means to be a human being. So if you just back up if you remember when God gives his Ten Commandments, these instructions about, that, are, that, are, that are truly more that idea of kind of eternal principles, these instructions for, for what it means to worship him and be human, the fifth commandment is this, honor your father and mother. And in that context, it's not just about children doing what their parents tell them. It's, it's about honoring this structure of the household and, and, and working within it. And in our two obviously relatively confusing passages that we just read, if we read them the way that I think we're meant to, not, not just focusing on the directions themselves, but on the trajectory, the priority, where it is leading them, we will see that both of these are specifically designed to uphold the integrity, the soundness, the goodness of the household. So in the, the first messy situation we have, we have Polygamy, not endorsed by the Bible, just recognized that it was existing by the Bible. And so you have this situation where a man has two different wives, one that he loves, one that he doesn't. This is, you know, a Jacob, Rachel, Leah kind of situation, if you know Genesis. And, and the one that he loves, she doesn't have the firstborn. The one that he doesn't love has the firstborn son. But he wants to treat the secondborn son of the one that he loves with favoritism, treat him like he is the firstborn. And, and here's the instructions. Based in that mess, what's the step that you need to take? And the answer is the parents, the patriarch, the one who has power to oversee the household, his power is limited. It needs to be just. It needs to maintain the order of the household. The firstborn has to be recognized, has to be acknowledged, we're told, as the firstborn. He has to be treated according to his rights, which literally is the word of justice. Even if you have power, if you are the father, you must submit yourself to the order of the household because the household must be preserved. That's the underlying point of this first story. 
or this first instruction. Second instruction, obviously, is one that, that if we're listening, probably gives us even more this, you know, feeling of unease. Um, it's in some ways addressing the opposite side. Here, the parents are not the issue. Here, it is the, the son. It's speaking of someone who's stubborn and rebellious. And the idea is persistent, ongoing, all the way into adulthood, rebellion. And I, you need to remember, and here again is another reminder that we are standing in a different place than the people of Israel were, that this was a theocracy. God is the ruler of Israel. And what he has done is he has ordained the administration of his covenants to the parents. The parents are the ones who are supposed to instruct their children in the way of the covenant, the way of following God. So when a child persistently rejects the parent's instruction, assuming the parents are doing things well and rightly, that child is actually persistently in rejecting the rule of God. So we see the instructions that are given here that in this context, it is not to be stayed within just the, the, the small household, it's to be elevated so that the elders of the clan, the city together, comes and deliberates, so that to make sure that there is not some sort of speeds to judgment. They, they, they pursue understanding, making sure that the parents are not the ones at fault. It talks about the parents even after disciplining, that is, even after the parents have, have carefully, lovingly taught their son, the son continues to reject this way that the parents are instructing them. And then, in that situation, we're told that the punishment is the same as the punishment we saw in chapter 13 for persistent idolatry. The one who has rejected God's rule by rejecting parents is to be stoned. And we're told, purge the evil from your midst. Again, I am grateful that we are in a different place in history. Our kingdom is not of this world with, with Jesus as our king. And, and the way that we are to address those who reject the rule of God is, is very different in the New Testament from the Old Testament. But what I want us to do is to step back and once again see the trajectory, to look along the path and see where it is meant to take God's people. And what we see once again is this prioritizing of the household, that we need to maintain the order and the structure of household. It's even in some ways depicted here as a matter of life and death. It's that important. And if we consider how Moses, when he repeats the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5, don't know if you notice this, but there's two different places in the law of Moses where the Ten Commandments are spoken. And the second one, when Moses repeats it, he says, honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you. It's the only time he actually says, as the Lord your God has commanded you. And that emphasis seems to be reminding people this, this structure that we have, this household, it's not just a matter of human convenience. It's not just a cultural thing. This really matters to God. In fact, right after that, Moses then reminds them what God actually says about the household. He says that if you do this, if you honor your father, if you maintain the integrity of the household, that you might live long and it might go well in the land that the Lord your God has given you. What God is saying is that there is something that is important about this structure, and if you want to flourish as a human being, and if you want to flourish as a society in the land that I'm giving you, you need to uphold this structure of the household. So that's the Old Testament. What's interesting also to me is that when you get to the New Testament, this emphasis on, on household, what we might call like a micro-community, right? Something that is 
larger than just you or even the nuclear family, but smaller than like us or, or a town. This micro-community once again is upheld as significant and important. So in, in Paul's instructions to the Ephesians, he, he, he encourages them to kind of live by the power of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity is is this gift that Jesus gives to all believers, helping us to learn how to live into the life that we are called to live as followers of Jesus. And, and in Ephesians 5, he gives this instruction, be filled by the Spirit. Allow your life to be fundamentally reshaped by the Spirit is what it means. And then he describes what that looks like. When you're filled by the Spirit, it will mean that you're going to encourage one another in the truth. It will mean that you will in your heart, give gratitude to God and be filled with joy. And third, it will mean that you will uphold your relationships within the household. To be filled with the Spirit means you will submit to those that you need to submit to, that you will love, that you will respect. The Spirit-filled life is a Spirit that actually strengthens the household. Which is interesting, don't you think? And again, we need to remember that the household is not just the nuclear family. In fact, here is the thing that in the New Testament shifts and changes a bit. So it still upholds the household, but whereas in the Old Testament the household was primarily biology, right? It was primarily but not exclusively about family. In the New Testament we see a, a deeper bond being described as what holds the household together. Because in the New Testament there are people who because of their love for Jesus, are rejected from their homes. There are people who, as Paul speaks of, for the sake of the kingdom, choose to be celibate, which means they will have no descendants. And yet still, they have a household. The household for them is spoken of as the house church. The house church would be in a house, people gathering, and they would be a whole jumble of different people. You would have Jews, and Gentiles. You'd have slaves and very wealthy. You'd have the single. You'd have families. They would all come together, and the language that they would use for each other are brother and sister. Because though they aren't necessarily related by blood, they are related more deeply by their bond in Christ. You would have some who would be spiritual parents, mentors, and others who would be spiritual children. You have the same level of bond of of commitment and connection that the Old Testament household envisioned, but it would be about something more than just blood. It would about their, be about their unity in Christ. The household church, the house church, became in the New Testament the equivalent of the household within the Old Testament. And so what we see in the New Testament is something different it's not just the same as the old, but what we see very clearly in the New Testament is this vision of this micro-community, this household still being very significant. This is something that God says is crucial to human flourishing. See, I think by and large, when we think of kind of humanity, we usually operate at two levels, right? There's the self, and there is the community. There is me, the individual, and there is everyone else, public. But what we're supposed to understand here is that there is a mediating middle 
size that is absolutely crucial. There is a, a, a grouping that is larger than just me, larger than even the nuclear family, that extends a little bit beyond that, but yet is small enough to maintain bonds of responsibility and being known and connecting to each other, that that mediating micro-community that we might call the household is actually central to human flourishing and to the good of society. And I think the reason for that is kind of simple. We are told throughout Scripture that the, the way to be human is to love God with all of our being and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And the question we should ask is how? How do we become people who love God and others in that way? How did you become, if you are someone who is a Christ follower, if you would say that you love God, how did that love for God grow within you? I can tell you for myself, the way that I learned to love God was when I was three or four, I remember my parents sitting me down and they, they just kind of told me the basics of the Bible about sin, about Jesus dying, and I believed. I remember a few later, years later, I think, I think my dad and I were... A, in, in a garden that we were pl planting, for a few years we had this kind of vegetable garden kick, and as I was trying to like stick the shovel in the ground, my weight couldn't even cause it to penetrate, but I was working. I, I, I asked this question that I'd been kind of like trying to think through, how do we know that it's true? I think at the time I thought maybe I was the first person ever who asked this question, but I was surprised that my dad actually had a thought about that and, and started talking with me. And so in this conversation, he showed me more what it meant to love God. But of course, it wasn't just instruction, it was seeing their lives, how they organize their week around trying to be faithful to God, whether it's attending church or personal study or lives of integrity, very flawed, but yet legitimate. And my guess is that for many of you, when you think about how you came to know what it looks like, how you came to learn to love God, it was within the context of the household that this took place. Maybe that's not true for, in fact, I know that's probably not true for all of you, for some who came to faith later in life, but even there, I would suggest that there's usually, not always, but usually some person or a couple of people that you might even think of as like spiritual mentors, people who modeled and showed you how to love God in the context and the bonds of relationship. Meanwhile, how, how do we learn to love others? Is the household not the training ground of love. I mean, the household is the place that you and I are known, right? I mean, I can look much less selfish here by being nice, but my family knows me. And we know that. There, there's things that we don't show to anyone but, but just our family. And yet, if our household is, is working right, we can be known for who we are and yet experience that we are loved. And as we experience that, that begins to teach us how to see other people with all of their annoyances and yet to love them. Within the household, we have these bonds of responsibility for each other so that if we find ourselves in the middle of the night with our cell phone battery run out and we are on the side of the road because our car is broken down, we know that there's going to be someone who will be aware that we didn't come home. 
And we know that if somehow we find the ability to borrow someone else's phone or we find a payphone, if those even exist anymore, and we call, someone is going to answer and they're going to pick us up no matter what time of night. And as we experience the way people own responsibility towards us, then we ourselves learn to have that same sacrificial attitude towards others. We're willing to put aside our own preferences to care for others, not because it's easy, but because they're ours. If the household is is working as it's designed to, and it's becoming this training ground of love, then beyond even this, a household will turn us outward because that's how love works. And a household becomes a a source of, of hospitality towards the world, of generosity, of service. See, it's only in the context of the bonds and commitments of human relationships that we truly learn to love. The household is how we become people in a community who love God and love neighbor. Now again, I'll say this at least one more time. We should recognize that even though a lot of our illustrations here we think in the nuclear family, that when the Bible is speaking of household, it's speaking of something bigger than this. Until very, very recently in the span of human history, families did not live far apart from each other. Families would be next to each other. You'd be near your extended kin, and and there was a support there that now does not exist oftentimes. And so now in our culture, we are seeing just how exposed and how vulnerable the nuclear family can be without those other bonds. And more than that, as we see in the New Testament, that, that the gospel moves us to a different way of even viewing family. So yes, nuclear family can be a part of it, but it's more than that. Where people who are single or people who have been cast out or have bad relationships with their family can be incorporated and brought into households so that everyone has a place. The household is something bigger and, and more beautiful than what we think of when we think of the nuclear family. But what I want us to see as we are reflecting on all this is that this is where God wants us to go. To to be in these micro-communities, these relationships where there are bonds of commitment and being known by others. God is showing this is what the life that is good, the life that is flourishing, the life that is beautiful looks like. This is where we are meant to be for our destination. But even as as we talk about that, my guess is that some of us are feeling some degree of either discomfort or even some objections kind of come to mind. Some very, very legitimate objections. One of them, a heartbreaking objection, I suppose you could say, is, is someone saying, hey, you're speaking it again and again as a household where if everything works the way it's supposed to, but don't you realize that that's oftentimes not the way it is? Don't you realize that within this network of relationships that you're describing, there can be awful things that take place. There can be so much hurt. There can be so much abuse. I'm not that excited about the household, which I think is a very reasonable and important question, right? I mean, we can't look at this and romanticize the way human relationships work. We have to look at it with realism and honesty and recognize 
that, that in this dark forest that we're in, there is a lot of mess and not always a lot of answers. This is part of the reason, I would suggest, that, that the house church is not the only unit that you have. I mean, in the New Testament, the house church is part of something that belongs to something bigger. You have essentially the clan. What we are here would be kind of what you consider to be like the village or the clan, where, where elders from different house churches gather together to make decisions. And, and that larger structure allows for accountability in a way that just the house church by itself would not. And more than that, I think this is one of the reasons it's important that we don't just identify household with biology. Because there are some times where a person cannot have the kind of relationship with their biological family that they would long for because of something so deeply broken, and, and they need to be spiritually enfolded elsewhere. And yet, having said that, uh, the reality is that that's not going to fix, that's not going to solve the problem that we're talking about here. The reality is that as long as people seek to have intimate connections with each other where they depend upon each other and they grow to know each other, there will always be great potential for hurt. Yet I would suggest that the alternative, the choice to remain anonymous and disconnected, is nevertheless not the path that we want to choose. Now that brings us to a second question where it's, it's the pragmatist who's saying, this feels very idealism. This feels very, you know, like this idea of like somehow families or people getting together in these micro-communities where they maybe live together in a commune. I mean, that's really not connecting with reality. I mean, maybe that worked in the New Testament. But do you not realize that a lot has changed between then and now? Which, again, is utterly legitimate as a question. In fact, it's worth just thinking about how many things, how, the kinds of things that have happened that have made this vision of the household seem almost unimaginable. Now, think about geography. Until very recently, in human history, a person who grew up would live near his or her parents, either in the same home or, or very close, within walking distance. And what that meant was you'd have multiple generations living together, but not only that, you'd have continuity between those people and neighbors that they've known for multiple generations, allowing for bonds of relationship. But we know recently things have changed. The expectation now is when kids go off to college, they probably will never come back to the hometown. And even wherever they land, that will probably be a temporary landing point. And then a few years later, they'll go somewhere else, making deep relationships almost impossible beyond just the nuclear family. Or take economy. Until very recently, the entire household would be focused on their home business, oftentimes with farms. Everyone in the household would be chipping in together towards that end, which means work would bring people together. But now, in the last century or so, we see the opposite, right? Where, where work is the thing that disintegrates the family, where we're feeling pulled in so many different directions, kids in classes, each of us doing all this work, and we're worried about work-family balance. It pulls us apart. Or think about technology. Until very recently, the only way you could do anything was by depending upon each other. Outside of just your nuclear family, you needed more than that. 
for, for fixing the house, for getting work done, even for entertainment. You would rely on each other for stories. But now we just, with a click of a button, can get what we need, can get the entertainment we need. We can be as private and independent and internally self-sufficient as we want to be. And so if we think even on these three different levels, we see that what has happened has kind of been like an acid to just kind of burn away the possibility of the kind of relationships that we're speaking about here. Now, I want to say two things. I want to suggest that there is, there is a way forward. There is a way where we don't have to just somehow kind of become like the first century, a modern version of what the household is pointing us to that is possible. But I also want to say that I'm not sure we can get there yet. What I mean by that is I I think that there are so many forces, there are so many things, like the ones we've just described, that make it almost unimaginable to know what would it look like for us to function as human beings and the kind of community that we are designed for. We are so far deep in the forest that we're not able to get there yet. But that doesn't mean we can't start. That doesn't mean we can't take a first step. If we know where we're going, then maybe we can take a first step and then Tomorrow, when we maybe are shown by God a little bit more about what the next way out of the forest is, we can take the next step, always slowly moving. In in some ways, bit by bit, us working together to build a vision for household, a way of functioning together as households, so that even if we can never experience really what we were meant to experience, maybe our children or maybe even our grandchildren can experience what we can't. I would suggest it begins with a vision. It begins with seeing how we were meant to be. With us having a deeper awareness of what we have lost in the past and a deeper longing for what one day might be. It involves us of having this vision for more than just the nuclear family but for something where the boundaries are broader, where people are incorporated into this web of of connection and commitment and belonging. And more than that, that this, this household we're thinking of, its purpose is not just to keep people safe and comfortable and happy, but actually that there is a vision for purpose, that it is a training ground of love meant to be this source of, of creativity and life and love for the world. We need to get that vision to look along the way that God is showing us and see, oh, that's what it looks like. And then as we begin to see this is what is one day possible, we try to take a step. Now, I think for each of us, what it looks like to, if you will, start to move towards the way of the household, it will look a little different for each of us because we're all in slightly different contexts. But as we each think through what would it look like to live this out, my guess is there's going to be some commonalities for that. For one, it will be us moving away from our tendency to want to completely control every detail of our lives by keeping other people at arm's length and move towards 
commitments to each other that hinder our personal freedom. It will be us moving away from our tendency to maintain privacy and instead move towards being known and recognized even as we know and recognize others. It will be us moving away from our desire to be independent, not needing anyone else's help and not needing anyone else to depend upon us, and instead moving towards bonds of responsibility where others are responsible for us and we depend upon them and they depend upon us. It will not be easy and oftentimes it will not be comfortable, but it will be good. And if we're looking for just kind of a practical beginning point, I would suggest to start thinking about something as simple as as our community groups, where we come together in a smaller subset of this church to know each other, to eat with each other, to rely upon each other in prayer, to grow closer to each other. It's a small thing, but it is a step along the way in the way of the household. 